Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guests for the episode, Dr. Carol Owens and Dr. Stephanie Swales, and they join us for part one of a two-part interview for their new book, Psychoanalyzing Ambivalence with Freud and Lacan on and off the couch, first published 2020 by Routledge. Dr. Carol Owens is a psychoanalyst and clinical supervisor in private practice in North Dublin. She is the founder of the Dublin Lacan Study Group. She was editor of the journal The Letter, Perspectives on Lacanian Psychoanalysis from 2003 from 2007. She is the series editor at Rutledge for the series Studying Lacan's Seminars. She's published articles and book chapters in the field of Lacanian psychoanalysis and at its junctures with critical psychology, queer theory, film theory, cultural studies, and critical management theory. Dr. Stephanie Swales lives in Dallas, Texas, where she is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Dallas, a practicing psychoanalyst, a licensed clinical psychologist, and a clinical supervisor. She is the founder of the Dallas-Fort Worth area Lacan Study Group, and recently served as the president of the Dallas Society for Psychoanalytic Psychology. Dr. Swales is on the executive board of the Dallas Postgraduate Program in Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy. She is the author of numerous articles and book chapters on the theory and practice of Lacanian psychoanalysis, in some cases, as it intersects with critical psychology and cultural studies. Dr. Swales, Dr. Owens, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we begin all of our episodes with the question, um, what motivated you to write the book? Um, and in this case, what, if, what motivated you to write the book? And then how did you come to write it together? Um, Dr. Owens, why don't you start us off? Well, uh, hi. Thank you, Christopher. Um, that's a, a nice question. Um, so, uh, so Stephanie and I met um, at a, a conference some years ago, and um immediately almost immediately decided that we just had so many things to talk about together about our practice and about the things that we were reading and we even at the same time had a supervisor in common so very very quickly um we came up with a couple of ideas that we thought would be interesting to Think about working together um, as a project. We weren't really sure where the project would lead, um, but as we began to develop more and more ideas about this particular concept, which was this old psychoanalytic concept, ambivalence, we got more and more excited, and the ideas just began to flow. In terms of how, I would say that's the subject, and I know Stephanie will be smiling at this. Um, it's a subject which has been a kind of source of intrigue. 
for a lot of our friends and colleagues over the years um, who've become just really quite curious about how the process, how the writing process uh, was carried out and how we developed our ideas together. Um, and I don't know, Stephanie, you want to say something about that too? Oh, sure. Um, well, it, it, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, really quite quickly uh, upon, you know, meeting each other in person, I, I had read, you know, some of your work previously. Um, we decided let's, let's work on something together. And I had never co-authored anything with uh, anyone before. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, it, it certainly seems like a risky endeavor because, um, you know, uh, working together and especially the way that, that we do, um, uh, can can be challenging, um, but uh, it's just uh, really worked out. I guess our our intuitions were were right. Um, you know, I know some people uh, manage being co-authors by writing. You know, each one will write a certain part of uh, the argument, um, or you know, go chapter switch off chapters. But Carol and I. Um, uh, you know, talked every week about our ideas and, um, you know, certainly one of us would take the lead on this or that area of the book, but, you know, we always, um, you know, wrote and rewrote, uh, what each of us had written to the point where, uh, I really can't tell anymore who wrote what, uh, it's, it's very difficult. Um, and it's just been lovely. Um, you know, Carol's a very dear friend and, um, you know, she and I are kind of, um, you know, we do have other friends, um, but <laughs> when, <laughs> when, we, when we go to conferences together, um, you know, people make fun of us for, uh, you know, being, uh, uh, you know, being together so often and yeah. right. Um, but in a, in a nice way, hopefully. That's uh, we, right. we certainly, we certainly enjoy it. We, we do. And well, it, we've had a lot of fun with it. Well, it makes sense that we need two people to write about ambivalence. Exactly. Of course. That's what <laughs> we said. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. so let's, um, let's start right out of the gate with that. Um, which is I, uh, I worked years ago with a guy who used to joke his, his, you know, sort of his cocktail party joke was I've got mixed feelings about ambivalence, <laughs> but you, you state clearly, um, that ambivalence is not mixed feelings. So for the purpose of the book and for the podcast today, what's the, the, the definition of ambivalence? Sure. So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard since I, I can't see Carol, we can't decide which of us is gonna, <laughs> gonna <laughs> speak first. Um, but, um, yeah, mixed feelings tends to imply that, you know, both are very much, uh, accessible at the conscious level. Um, you know, but for us, um, instead it's, uh, you know, essentially takes us back to, to Freud and, and Freud's initial conception of, um, you know, where, where one current is conscious, the other is unconscious. Uh, two, two are equally, uh, the two currents are equally strong, but they're localized in the subject's mind in such a fashion that they can't come up against each other. 
Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, there it's, you know, the affect can be you know, split off and um, the associated affect of the repressed idea and transformed or displaced. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's something that evades our conscious perception, something about our experience. And, and I so, think oh, sorry, just, just to, just to add that, um, you know, that makes uh, ambivalence kind of a central operation of the human experience um, insofar as, uh, you know, if we're subjects with a conscious and unconscious processes, then by definition, uh, ambivalence is at the, at the core of subjectivity. Go ahead, Carol. Yeah, I was just going to um, add a couple of things, but absolutely. The, 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 what you said, Christopher, this, this kind of commonplace understanding of, I think, yeah, I mean, if you went out in the street and asked people, what, what, you know, what does ambivalence mean? They would probably say something like, well, you know, to, to, yeah, to feel at least a couple of ways about something or another. And, and that's just it. I mean, that, that is, you know, you wouldn't say to that person, well, you're wrong. It doesn't mean that. It clearly can mean that at the level of, you know, popular or common understanding, common discourse, you know. Um, it's interesting, I think, that Stephanie and I, you know, we had a couple of different subtitles in mind for the book. Uh, eventually, this one, you know, came, it, it said it better, what we wanted to capture in the book. Um, but one of the uh, subtitles that uh, I really liked, <laughs> but that wouldn't have worked um, in uh, for for American readers was I wanted to use the expression um, in two minds about it. Okay, so you know that as 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 a subtitle, and Stephanie said, "Well, we can't well, we can't use that because it doesn't really mean anything." Like it, it, we we say of two minds, and immediately it was like good grief. You know, this idea of there being two minds is exactly the kind of conundrum that Freud himself resolved when he was talking about ambivalence. You know, that initially, you know, he had to think about and theorize ambivalence as about, let's say, two different people. In other words, love for the mother, hate for the father in the kind of eatable version of ambivalence. But later... He situates both the love and the hate just in different places in the subject's mind. So it's kind of interesting that the very title of the book already, if you like, you know, challenges um, and, and gets right to the core of, uh, let's say, the difference between our everyday understanding of ambivalence and the psychoanalytic understanding of ambivalence. And it was definitely something that we wanted to cover. We, in, in fact, we wanted to say something about both, but being psychoanalysts, we wanted to privilege the psychoanalytic understanding. You say somewhere, and, and I've, I've read the book, but then I've also attended um, papers you've given, so I'm not sure if this comes out of the book or those, um, but the, the idea that the core of the book came out of the clinic. So it's on and off the couch. Let's start on the couch. What, what came out of the clinic? What were you seeing, listening to, experiencing? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it always starts with the clinic. It, it has to. Um, 
when you hear about ambivalence, you, you, somebody doesn't come in and say, listen, I'm feeling ambivalence. What they talk to you about is their intense feelings of love and hate, uh, their stories of friendship and enmity, their, um, the tragedy of mourning, uh, the, the, the challenges of adolescence, the difficulties of motherhood and maternity. And it's absolutely in every moment of the transference. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's ambivalence isn't presented usually as a symptom on the couch, if you like, if anything. And certainly I've always thought about it this way. And I know that Stephanie and I were absolutely in agreement about this when we first started talking about it was that, in fact, moving towards the articulation of ambivalence in the clinic is restorative. It, in fact, presents the subject, presents the patient with a way to move forward. Um, it, that's, that's the clinical aspect. And, and I would, yeah, I think well said, Carol. And uh, I mean, it's just, just everywhere in our practices. Um, and, and I would add to your last sentiment there that, uh, you know, a, a patient's presenting problem, you know, might be, I, I just want to, um, you know, get that promotion, but I, I can't seem to make myself work harder or, you know, get to work on time even, you know, so on and so forth. And, and so they, you know, they think that they want to um, figure out how they can work harder and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, um, you know, when there's, there's some, um, you know, conscious, desire to do something, but yet it's belied by their uh, experience and their actions and, and choices um, as, uh, you know, there's something else there, um, some other force, then, um, you know, ambivalence is, is typically lurking there, you know, some ambivalent attitude toward a parental figure, you know, vis-a-vis, the subject's success or or lack thereof, or choice of career, um, things like that, and so um, you know they're they're within um, you know what we might call symptoms or, or presenting problems, um, but they have to be unpacked, and it's it's through this unpacking and um, you know working through that. That the treatment really moves forward, and again, and I think it's important to say, and I, this is sort of imminent in, in, in perhaps what we've already said, but that you know we, we never would think of ambivalence um, as a symptom. So, it, it, at the same time, and you know, I, I think we, we, we chatted about this briefly earlier, Christopher, that you know, it, it, it what ambivalence, if you like is and and i would say always is following adam phillips um is that it's an index of what is most important to the subject to the patient without and as stephanie has just pointed out without their being aware of the importance so uh you know where where one uh let's say for where one you know strong emotion is expressed you know where there is hatred or, or jealousy or envy um you know what what cannot be accessed what absolutely cannot be reached is the other pole 
of that uh, emotion. And this is where, I mean, in, in, in many ways you come across this when you're dealing with someone in a state of profound mourning where they have elevated the, you know, the lost object, we would say, the, the dead person, whoever the beloved person was, they have elevated them to the, you know, to the, to the level of, 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 you know, saintliness, to the le- level of godliness almost. You know, this person could do no wrong. They were wonderful. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to live without them. Um, yeah, they, they never, you know, they never put a foot wrong. Um, this wonderful person now. And, and gradually, over time, working with that person and allowing them to work through the tensions of their ambivalence, of course, what they can come around to realizing is, well, <laughs> you know, maybe they weren't that wonderful. And I miss all of that. I don't just miss the wonderful bits. I also miss the less wonderful bits. But these less wonderful bits cannot be spoken about because the tension of the expression of the tension of ambivalence, it catches us. And that's, I suppose, one of the huge arguments we make in this book is that when the tensions of ambivalence cannot be expressed, in other words, whether they are uh, either unconsciously negated in some way, repressed, we would say, but also we can use other terms like foreclosed or disavowed, in some way not allowed, we can say. Um, then then what we know as psychoanalysts is that, you know, it pops up somewhere else. And this is a huge argument, like a main theme that we uh, that we that we work on throughout the book. And that's why we use unusual figures and I know that you want to get there later Christopher but that's you know that 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 really is you know it starts with the couch what cannot be expressed what is repressed it finds its way out elsewhere and you find it in client dreams and and you know especially those who have lost you know we, we talk about that a lot you know when 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 you when you have someone who has lost someone that that you know that that dead person will appear in dreams and is often indicative of where the person is in their morning. You know, um, we could say more about that if you like later on. Well, I was thinking about when you're talking about the the person in, in the morning, um, and eventually they say, "Well, you know, I, I also you know have this memory, and that it's not accessible to them." Um, I, I had an experience of that inaccessibility in the in what seems like a shocking. A question where a patient um, uh, said to me, this said, can I, can I tell you something personal? <laughs> can, this, they said, can I tell you something personal? Um, and, and that's what I was like, yes, but I realized that that as they begin to access what had been inaccessible, that felt more personal than yeah. the than, than what I've been talking about before. Sure. It, was a, it was a wonderful moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, because mm-hmm. they needed, you know, asking permission, permission. of me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that you would, yeah, exactly. And, and all too often that comes forth in the transference, you know. You must be thinking that, um, yeah. you know, that the, the thing that they are ashamed of or wish they, wish they hadn't thought comes out through you. That's right. 
Exactly. Well, you, Carol, you mentioned foreclosure, and foreclosure is is goes throughout the book. Um, and um, let's uh, let's get off the couch <laughs> because <laughs> let, let let's get off the couch. And and I want to read um, something that was in one of the um, endorsements of the book. Ah. Uh, Todd Todd McGowan mm-hmm. says um, ambivalence is perhaps the central category in social relation in an era characterized by refusing ambivalence, which is refusing the price of interacting with others all together. Um, and um, I guess to, to take it off the couch, um, asking a, a question you ask in the book, what are the symptomatic effects um, on the individual at the social level of foreclosure in everyday life? Well, uh, okay, this is a really big question. It's <laughs> like the whole of the rest of the book. Okay. Uh, right, so let's see. So chapter one, no, no, just kidding. Um, so, um, so probably I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to come at this by making reference to, um, of all things, zombies. Uh, um, because, um, it's what occurred to us, uh, almost straight away when we began to think about what are the consequences at the level of the social, at the level of the social bond, uh, as Lacan would say, um, for uh, the, you know, keeping the expression of the tensions that accompany ambivalence, of keeping them, we could say, off the stage, okay? And that's another concept that we, we use a lot throughout the book, the idea of staging the tensions of ambivalence, because we felt, and we, you know, looking at all of the different, I mean, we use a lot of, um, you know, we, we, ref, we refer to a lot of TV, a lot of film, both mainstream and otherwise, to um, things which, if you like, come to represent um, the kind of, I suppose, we can say that the cultural pulse, you know, on or about something which which gathers momentum and, and has a bit of heat. Um, so I suppose, you know, we were struck uh, and, 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 you know, I, and I always give credit to, and I know Stephanie will approve of this, but we always give a little bit of credit here where it's due to one of my own kids because when, um, you know, we started to talk about, oh, working in ambivalence. And and my youngest son said, well, you should watch The Walking Dead. Uh, it's all about that, you know? Um, and I said, The Walking Dead? Like, what the hell? This is like a show about zombies, right? And, uh, you know, I hadn't watched it. Stephanie hadn't watched it. It was like, well, Stephanie, apparently we have to watch The Walking Dead. <laughs> all about ambivalence, right? So, but, so, okay, so we gave it a shot. And it was like, oh, my God, of course. Because what is represented, and, and, and obviously there will be people listening to this who will go, well, don't tell me what The Walking Dead is about. And it's definitely not about psychoanalyzing ambivalence. But actually, though, what it does represent is the kind of tatters of the social bond, you know, what is left uh, after the love has gone, so to speak. Um, 
because you're left just with uh, hatred, you know. And we, of course, and there are so many people um, commenting on the the whole genre of zombie film production and zombie TV show production since the very beginning, back in the 1930s. The zombie has been a kind of um, stand-in for uh, what is, you know, not wanted uh, in the social bond. Whether it's the, you know, homeless, out of work, uh, you know, um, destitute um, American worker on the streets following the crash of the the late twenties, or, or. The other version, which, you know, comes from, um, you know, the tales of Haiti, from, you know, the kind of the voodoo zombie um, in, 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 in the stories of, of Haiti. So, uh, again, you know, the, the something of the oppressed or destitute, unlovable, uh, who could say, neighbor. Um, and this was a theme that, really struck us because we thought, no, good grief. Um, at the level of social interaction, at the level of, of culture, what is really most difficult for us if we cannot express the tension of our ambivalence is how do we, on the one hand, love our neighbor, you know, get along with them just fine, considering them in all of their potential otherness how do we do that on the one hand when on the other hand according to the dictates of neoliberal capitalism actually our neighbor is our biggest rival for well you name it just about anything so that was really something that struck us that when you look at all these you know the production of zombie films you see people really enjoy seeing zombies heads being blown off they really enjoy, and you know what? There isn't a millennial alive who cannot tell you the most effective way to destroy a zombie. And that that should have so much um, cultural uh, uh, currency, you know, uh, is, is both striking, but also begging to be interpreted. And, 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 and so that's one of the things that, that we do in order to explain how ambivalent tensions run riot um, and can find no other representation or at least little adequate representation except through these, um, you know, the use of these unusual undead figures um, that we that we claim are, are stand-ins for the difficult neighbour that we really find most difficult to love. I, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd just add to that... Um you know, it emphasized that, uh, you know, the zombie ever since its inception uh, on, on the screen of varying sizes has um, served an allegorical function. Um, and, you know, Giorgio Romero's uh, famous trilogy, you know, features, um, you know, racism and, uh, you know, consumerism, um, so um, you know that's that's a theme which we which we've found throughout the twentieth and twenty first century, um, and you know vis a vis this this question of foreclosure of ambivalence, 
um, you know, that you were asking about, Christopher, uh, you know, our arguments related to that vis-a-vis -vis the, the figure of, of the zombie, which, you know, Carol very well articulated is, you know, we see the, the zombie as, as representing our symblob, um, our, the figure of the neighbor who is, too close for comfort and, you know, different from us in some kind of threatening way. Um, we, we traced, uh, you know, certainly we didn't uh, subject ourselves to a horrible movie marathon of all the, all of the zombie films and, and things, you know, from the eighties on, but um, we did. Oh, I don't know. We, we did a fair bit. <laughs> we, we, did, we did more than we thought we would. Yeah. True. Yes. Um, especially myself, not having previously been a fan of the genre, but um, uh, you know, we saw from the beginnings of the zombie on the screen through to the late eighties uh, that the zombie appeared uh, most frequently as a kind of you know monstrous figure from uh, beyond the grave or beyond our world as some kind of you know supernatural conjuring, um, and so um, that suggested to us that um, you know the the undead zombie as our um, roused dead neighbor was the zombie materialized in the real, uh, the order of Elkanian real as a kind of um, retribution punishment for human beings tinkering and meddling with the laws of God, of, of nature, you know, where they, where they shouldn't. Um, and so, um, you know, in that era, we, we saw some more, um, uh, the foreclosure of ambivalence in the symbolic, um, which led to the return of the ambivalence in the real that's materialized in this figure of the, of the zombie. And we found interestingly that especially post 9-11, um, becoming a zombie uh, was most often figured as the result of some kind of infection, some mysterious virus or, or plague, um, you know, people meddling with uh, scientifically with viruses, chemicals. Um, and uh, of course that sounds pretty um, on the nose right now with living yeah. with COVID-19 um, and, you know, in various parts of the world that are more in lockdown than um, my state currently is for, uh, I was going to say for better or for worse, but I think it's for worse personally. Um, uh, you know, that's made a kind of desert uh, of our, of our streets, um, you know, certainly has altered um, social life as, as we know it. And, and maybe a bit reminiscent of these post-apocalyptic scenes and, um, and zombie mm, films, but, totally. um, yeah. you know, so, so post nine 11, then we're saying that we see the disavowal of ambivalence or the denial of ambivalence has produced a kind of, um, perverse figure. Um, the, 
zombie next door as, you know, um, as your next door neighbor, basically. So, um, you know, certainly um, the foreclosure of ambivalence in our times is, is operative alongside the disavowal of ambivalence. Um, but just to continue this, this theme, we, we saw um, a kind of sh- shift in the um, zombie representations of, on the screen that clued us into maybe something of the dominant way to um, excise ambivalence in uh, society at different times. Mm. And I, I think that, and, and maybe just to even say the last, you know, something, I suppose the last word that we have in the book about about the zombie is um, that, you know, if you look at the most recent, um, uh, you know, use of the zombie, and even if, you, if, you, if, you, if you've seen the film World War Z or World War Z, as you would say, um, <laughs> I told Christopher that you were teaching the Americans, so you know. <laughs> um, the, the, I try. You know, you, you see these <laughs> swarms of zombies moving at high speed. You know, traveling, using you know, standing on each other's heads to uh, you know, in an apparent cooperative gesture to take something over, to uh, infest it, to devour it, and and these can be nothing other than you know, um, allegories about, you know, the fears that um, have prevailed in all parts of our world uh, in recent times, especially in recent times, um, about, you know, the fear of being invaded by the undesirable other um, who's just going to, you know, break over our borders, attack us and take what's ours, you know. Um, immigrants and enjoy various yes. sorts mm-hmm. exactly and enjoy at our expense um so there's this yeah it's it's a fascinating figure the zombie and i'm, sh- I'm quite sure there's lots more uh, mileage to be gotten from using the zombie in, in that way um but it's not the only figure that we look at in the book and we also look at you know, we look at vampires, we look at other characters and other monsters, but particularly, particularly <laughs> and, people. And, and people. And monsters. And I'm people, thinking yeah. of Trump, you know, is it okay to say Trump is a monster? Is it okay to say? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. But we do look at that too. We look at, you know, politics, characters and, you know, zombies. So. <laughs> and, and just just to add as well quickly that, um, you know, we, we don't see uh, that... Um, you know, so certainly it is true that uh, we can we can uh, view these you know zombie, for instance, representations on the on the various sizes of the screen nowadays. Maybe just just a small screen nowadays um, as representative of something of of our ambivalence at the moment, whatever the you know, whatever it is that's going on culturally, um, uh, whoever the figure of the degraded other might be, you know, racialized other or immigrant other, um, you know, so on and so forth. But um, we don't see that these kinds of representations actually help us work through our ambivalence. Exactly. Um, so they, they sort of 
you know, they function to represent them, but they don't help us resolve the tensions of ambivalence uh, far, yeah. far from it. And so, um, you know, while, while we can see that there's a lot of enjoyment in uh, mm. this kind mm. of weak staging of our ambivalence, yeah. and, and I would add as well, you know, video games certainly um, do the same thing. All the, all the violent killings that go on in, in video games you know, it's, it's not as though we're coming out the other end after watching however many seasons of The Walking Dead there are now, uh, you know, uh, all tidied up and, you know, our unconscious has been made conscious uh, and we now have a better relation with our with our neighbors. Yeah. And I think, uh, is it OK to say a little bit more about this, Christopher, not about zombies, but just about this whole idea of, you know, how how things are put on the stage for us in order to, let's say, mm, represent our, our, our tensions of ambivalence. Oh, yes. with, yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, because I, staging I, goes throughout the book and, and you say through different epochs, I think you talk about Henry VIII. We yeah, do. Please, let's, well, we do, yeah. but, but more and less directly about Henry VIII, but more about the representation of Henry VIII. And again, just, I mean, I wasn't going to say, well, yeah, but why not? Okay. So Henry VIII, <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting, right, that, you know, 500 years ago, this guy, but we are still making movies, we're still making TV shows. Why? You know, why? Why the hell is he so interesting? And, well, we think he's interesting because he brings, you know, he brings something out every single time, the fascination about why, you know, he, if you like, he moves, you know, so dramatically from one pole of his ambivalence to another first, you know, and he does it six times in a row, you know, and that's what makes it so riveting. Not just that, but also that he has to be, if you like, he has to persuade, uh, you know, in, in various ways. Um, he has to make very powerful uh, his conviction of the thing which was previously so libidinally charged as desirable has now fallen to a completely different kind of uh, situation and must be disposed of. And of course, when that happened in in Henry VIII's time, well, it usually ended on a particular kind of stage, usually with a, a you know a, someone bearing an axe. So we thought that you know there was something in a way these you know zombie killings and zombie massacres somehow you know that there is the same kind of appetite for a zombie killing as as there is in the viewer the spectator when you know wanting to see exactly how sharp was the axe that was you know uh, brought to the block by that very highly skilled executioner who was hired to kill Amboulin um, our fascination with that kind of detail certainly seems to uh, indicate that, you know, uh, the, the, the need for us to see something uh, staged of this, you know, particularly in this case, hateful aspect of someone's ambivalence. Now, what I was going to say, actually, was that, um, you know, uh, if you take someone like Bruno Bettelheim's work, you know, where uh, he, he wrote you know, so well about um, the constitutive aspect of uh, ambivalence in the young child's development, in the psyche of the young child, that, 
you know, it was essential for, uh, let's say, a child to, um, you know, see uh, and, and, and hear about figures who, in fact, were not at all ambivalent figures. They were good or they were bad, you know, um, not, not good and bad at the same time, but actually there were the good guys and there were the bad guys. And that this was certainly a characteristic element of, you know, traditional fairy fairy stories and fairy tales. Um, but if you look at the kinds of children's literature that prevails, especially for young children nowadays, they are completely, you know, washed out figures, emptied of jouissance and desire and of the kind of muddy complexity of ambivalence. And this is, again, something that, you know, Stephanie and I were really struck by because there was, at the time that we were writing, I think it was in its sixth or seventh season, the Netflix TV show Once Upon a Time, <laughs> which which brought together all of these fantastical characters who were, I suppose, in some ways, derivative of, um, you know, quite classic fairy tale um, heroes and villains. But unlike, you know, the kind of stories that Bettelheim viewed as, you know, essential for children to read in order to work through the psychical gap that exists between their feelings about the good guys and their feelings about the bad guys. In this TV show, Once Upon a Time, the person who was the good guy in one season in the next season comes back as the bad guy. So it really kind of suggests that, you know, contemporary viewers are incapable of tolerating the kind of psychical gap uh, between the good and the bad. That they, they, they just can't manage it. So, so we won't put them through that kind of distress, you know. We'll, we'll make sure that the good guy this season comes back as the bad guy the next season. And there we are, all tidied up. It's a very strange thing to do, you know? Well, you mentioned in that um, uh, the idea of jouissance, which is also a big part of the book, so I wanted to to, to get to it. Um, uh. And you were mentioning about the other, the racialized other, the animal other. Mm. Um, and you, you write in the book that ambivalence about one's own jouissance is at the very roots of xenophobia. Um, mm. Can you explain that? Sure thing. Sure. So, um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned Christopher that that some uh, of the listeners might not be familiar with the concept of jouissance. Yes, 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 yes. We need to do that um, first. So, um, you know, like many of Lacan's central concepts, it uh, shifts uh, and. and various ways throughout his work. It has different significations, but um, for our purposes, I think it's helpful just to think of it as being similar to Freud's concept of libido uh, and being a kind of embodied pleasure or enjoyment that typically involves some level of excitement or is mixed up with pain and suffering to varying degrees. So, uh, you know, speaking of zombie films, like the the jouissance, the pleasure that, that one might get from um, watching a zombie film, you know, getting scared, uh, being disgusted, um, you know, things like that. Um, jouissance and complaining, 
um, uh, from orgasm, from one symptom. Um, and, you know, it is a kind of enjoyment or satisfaction that um, makes us return as subjects to um, certain modes of jouissance again and again. Um, so you can see, um, you know, characteristic of each person are their ways of, you know, uh, deriving jouissance, ways of getting off. Um, and a lot of those ways, that person, if you ask them, you know, do you enjoy this? It's absolutely not. <laughs> um, uh, jouissance, though, can't be um, can't be repressed because it's. Um, uh, I mean, it's a it's a bodily experience, but it can absolutely be denied or or misrecognized. Um, and you know, we see jouissance at the center of of symptoms of repetition compulsion. Um, uh, you know, I don't understand why I keep doing this. Um, things like that. And, and so, um, you know, that being said, um, you know, I think, uh, so your question is, um, <laughs> again, Christopher about, um, about, uh, hatred of the neighbor. Could you, could you rephrase that one more time? Extimacy, wasn't it? You, you, he asked about yeah, it was the, um, yeah. I think in the book it's um, uh, ambivalence about one's own jouissance uh, is at the very roots of xenophobia. Um, Absolutely. And, then, and, and yeah. then also hatred of the other's jouissance. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so extimacy is, I think, a really fabulous Lacanian concept. Um, and um, it's, it's essentially at its roots, you know, the idea that um, there's something, um, uh, there's something uh, in our, the very core of uh, our experience um, that uh, is of the other. Um, so the intimate, you know, what we believe to be most unique, most intimate to ourselves has its roots in the other, um, inextricably linked with the other. And so, you know, it has various, you, you can see this in various ways in Lacan's teachings, um, you know, from the simple, our, our desires are formed by others' desires. We, you know, identify with them, take them on as our own, our own spin on it um or we disidentify with it which is you know the same same link you know no i'm not going to be like my mother um our our egos are formed through identifications with others and you know as we're highlighting here our jouissance is formed in relation to others um and so um uh you know i'd I'd go back um, a, a bit to say that uh, our, um, you know, what it is that is at the at the root of our um, intolerance of the figure of the of the other, the neighbor who threatens us, who arouses our our fear, our hatred. Um, it's based. Uh, on jouissance. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, 
this explains why, you know, there's no level of logic of words that can, you know, dissuade someone from uh, a racist position, for example. Um, um, you can't just explain explain away, you know, why this other person is wrong and have them say, oh, wow, you know, um, thank you so much. Um, I'm totally changed now. Um, because, uh, you know, racism and other forms of intolerance of the other, of xenophobia, um, is based on um, what we call um, uh, an extimate ambivalence about our own jouissance. Um, so try to explain this quickly and I'll let, you know, Carol, Carol chime in. Um, but, um, you know, essentially then, um, you know, what really bothers us about the other is, um, you know, the way that, um, the other, um, enjoys in, in terms of jouissance, um, and, um, you know, our, our hatred of the other's jouissance has a, important structural cause, um, which is that our, uh, you know, the path to subjectivity um, entails, uh, you know, we could think of the psychoanalytic term castration. Um, you know, we all are socialized into various ways of giving up certain pleasures, you know, no, you can't, you know, um, cling to, to mommy anymore. Um, um, you've got to be potty trained. You can't just go whenever you want. Um, um, you know, you have to share things like that. So there's, there's a kind of um, relinquishing of jouissance that occurs uh, in order to enter into subjectivity. And we, th- we see, you know, that the, that the other, the big other, whoever represents that for us, um, you know, culture is demanding it from us. So we, we then forever see it as a kind of sacrifice we've made of our jouissance and given over to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this sacrifice is represented, you know, in Freudian terms by the lost object and Lacanian terms by um, the object a, the petit objet a. Um, and then we're forever fantasizing afterwards, you know, that if only we could, you know, obtain uh, the object, then we'd be truly whole, truly happy, um, um, and uh, everything would be fine and dandy. But of course, what we misrecognize is that the object is not an actual object. There's no object that corresponds to that loss. Um, we never really had it. Uh, we never really had this state. And so, um, uh, anyway, so since we see it as having been stolen by the other, um, uh, you know, through the lens of resentiment of sour grapes, you know, we then, um, hate the other's resource, um, because we see it, we tend to perceive it in this kind of um, perversely uh, excessive manner, you know, oh, they're enjoying themselves too much or, or indecently, um, that they're, um, uh, you know, they're, they're wrong somehow to enjoy in the ways in which they do. Um, 
And, you know, in that way, we're, we're locked into a kind of essential ambivalence about the other's puissance, because in our, our hatred of it, we're actually claiming it as our own. We're saying, oh, you know, um, you know that's, that's lost, that's my jouissance, um, it's, and it's loved then by us. Um, so, um, you yeah. know, essentially, um, yeah, go ahead, Carol. I have, I have a few other thoughts, but yeah, you chime in and, and then. Well, I, I mean, look, you, you, you've said it all there, Stephanie, really, but I think that it, the, 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 the crucial point to kind of, and you know, you've, you've said it two or three times in a way that it, it's, it's to, to, to kind of hit home this idea that, you know, their jouissance is our jouissance. It cannot be anything else. In so far as we believe we've been robbed of something, that is what, of course, then retroactively makes it our own. How could we be robbed of something unless it was ours to be robbed in the first place? So if the other, whatever that other is or how it's constituted, if they are enjoying at our expense, it is because they have stolen what we would enjoy if we could. And this is the... You know, I'm mean, Chris. You kind of made the, you know, you posed the question about uh, well, the link between xenophobia and, um, you know, the, in a way, the, the the dehumanizing of the other. You know, the the, the making of the other an animal. Um, and we 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 actually quote we do quote Trump. Um, you know, talking about um, people crossing over the border. You know, and he's saying, you know, these these, these aren't people. These are animals, and we're taking them out of the country now, you know, faster than ever before. So this uh, way to speak about the other uh, as an animal is, is, is you know, it, it's, it's nothing, it's not like a, an old thing that we don't do anymore. No, it's, it's, it's still something that people do. This is how people describe the other. Um, and so I suppose what, what we've done is we, we've kind of, We've been reading, you know, Derrida, especially from his book, The Animal That Therefore I Am, where he talks about an immense disavowal. Um, and, and we read Derrida with Lacan to kind of say that, well, look, speciesism is a paradigmatic disavowal upon which human identity is based, you know, and that in order for any kind of xenophobia to begin to be overcome by the subject, it's going to be necessary to see oneself as one is seen by the other in his or her absolute alterity, and then to accept that strange beast within. So that you know, this, this what we're trying to bring out as this ultimate um, little shift of how, in fact, what we suffer from most is our own. Well, we say it actually in our afterward. Even what we suffer from most is our own disgusting jouissance. That both is you know what is most hated in the other as something which is robbed from us, and yet we cannot, in fact, find any good terms to be on with our own, uh, what we find our own disgusting jewelry cells. And I, I think, you know, further that, um, you know, when in the clinic, when we see people, you know, what, you know, whatever their various prejudices may be are, are revealed through dreams or or just their everyday discourse, it says, um, you know, the way in which they hate the other chouissance says something about their own chouissance. So I think it's a, 
it's a useful thing to keep in mind in, in clinical work as well. Exactly. Yeah. This is the end of part one of our two-part interview with Dr. Stephanie Swales, Dr. Carol Owens, and their book, Psychoanalyzing Ambivalence with Freud and Lacan on and off the couch. Part two of this interview up next.